Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Listening once again to the Cricket Collective on Talksport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, alongside Double Ashes winner Steve Harmison for the usual busy show. So, the good news is that Talksport have landed the rights for England's white ball tour of the West Indies, which starts this week. And we'll look ahead to the games, which will be live on Talksport 2. Uh, Michelle St. Patrick Hewitt from the Caribbean Cricket Podcast joins us to reflect on their squad with Darren Bravo among the big names to miss out. The PCA chair, James Harris, will join us to reflect on the release of the 2024 fixtures. And we'll ask again if there is too much being asked to the players with so much cricket scheduled. And we'll round up the week's other stories as there's been another turbulent week at Sussex. And Middlesex have announced that they will play a couple of home games in Essex. So plenty to come over the next hour. You're listening to The Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Let's begin then, Harmi, with uh, these three ODIs and five T20s, all of which uh, will be live on TalkSport 2. It's it's exciting, really. It feels very much like the beginning of a new era for England and probably for the West Indies, actually. Yeah, for the West Indies, it's it's a little bit different to England because they've got no... They're just planned for four years' time, trying to get into the World Cup, which is going to have 14 teams in it and this set of 10 in 2027. Um, England have got a two-year cycle because they've got the Champions Trophy, something that the West Indies couldn't qualify for because they weren't in the in the last edition of the World Cup. So you look at the squads that have been picked, the West Indies have had some, you know, one big notice of notable uh, mission, and that was obviously Darren Bravo. But from an England point of view, it is, it is exciting times. There are members of that World Cup squad who are going. I think there's six. There's some exciting young talent. Pity that Josh Chung has had to pull out, but it's a good opportunity for Matt Potts to go and play in the Caribbean with a white ball. And I think all in all, I think they've got one eye on moving to the next step from a, a building process and trying to replace some all-time grits of white ball cricket and English cricket to get them in a position to be challenging in 2025. But also I think in this squad, I think there's one or two there as well, just to give them some competitive game time ready for what is going to be undoubtedly a ridiculously tough tour to India. And I'm thinking the likes of Zach Crawley, Ben Duckett and, and Ollie Pope to name three. Plus, I think there's a couple of fast bowlers that have gone that have gone to the, the Caribbean, are going to the Caribbean 
who potentially could be earmarked for a, a role in India as well. So I think it is looking one step to the future and um, building towards that 2025. I think they've also got a short-term goal, which is to get some cricket inside players who are going to be very, very busy in India after Christmas. Talk a lot about the context of this series, and let's not escape the reality that uh, the economic reality that it's critical for the success of of the West Indies Cricket Board that uh, they have England tours as much as possible. So there is that aspect of it. But Harmi, we have to remember that you know, as a lifetime working in cricket for both of us, that we can tend to get a little bit blasé about a, a tour, a bilateral series that doesn't necessarily mean very much. And we, you're providing context with it now from an England perspective. But I'll never, ever forget one of the earliest lessons I learned when I was commentating at Warwickshire, and it was in the late 80s, giving my age away now, I think it was probably 1989, the championship was done. I think Warwickshire were going to finish 10th or 11th. And it was a largely meaningless championship game. And I remember that old warhorse, Jeff Humpage, because I made the mistake of saying, well, this game doesn't mean much, does it? And he pointed at two young lads sitting in the front of the front row, um, the Raybank stand at Edgebaston, and he said, it means everything to them. Don't forget that. It's their cup final. And we shouldn't forget that. I mean, this is still eight games of England against the West Indies. And for those people who go and those people who watch, it, it is, it, it's, you know, of great significance just in and of itself. It's, it's huge significance, even for, for, for the players. You know, there's, there's going to be you know, hundreds and thousands of supporters going over for, for some you know, winter sun in the Caribbean and enjoying you know, an all-inclusive holiday and on one of the islands of Barbados and that that that's where the players have got to you know live up to the billing of why they're there representing England and put on a good show because it is important. It's hugely important for the West Indies cricket board, it's hugely important important for tourism in in the Caribbean. But when you look at you look at the names on this ODI list. Rian Ahmed, massively important for him, for Chris Atkinson, Bryden Koss. You know, I mentioned Crawley and Duckett, and, 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 and you look at Will Jacks, who will feel as though he was disappointed not to be in, involved in the World Cup, Liam Livingston. His international career is, is on the line here because he has had a struggle in the last sort of 12 to 18 months. He has to go and try and rebuild, and I hope he does because he's a, he's a smashing talent, and I think he's somebody who, for me, is... Not wasting it, but he's he's very very close of, of of being moved to one side, and he's got so much to give. He's got so much to offer, and you like to your Phil Salts, Matt Potts, John Turner, who we had on the show last week. It's hugely important to them. So there's a there's a squad going over there with massive importance on where their future careers are going. Some players had an indifferent World Cup, which want to get that back their careers back on track. And others are starting, and I know that more than anything, that a Caribbean tour can start your career. It, it could, it, it can. In Jamaica in 2004, that period of 18, 20, 24 months for, for Matthew Hoggard, Steve Armisen, Simon Jones, Andrew Flintoff and Ashley Giles, the five bowlers who went on over the course of the next 18 months to win the Ashes, it started in the Caribbean because that's when we first played our first game together. So... These things, these little narratives will be something, I'm sure, the likes of Matthew Mott. I know Andrew Flintoff's going over there and there'll be one or two other coaches over there. We'll be reminding Paul Collingwood, Marcus Truscothic, who was on that, on them trips in 2004, 
we'll be reminding the players that this is this is a great place. And if you can start your career with something special in the Caribbean, it sets you off on a on a firm foot. And so that's what's on offer and that's what has to be driven into the players. And I think when people talk about bilateral cricket and cricket in general being you know, dead after the World Cup, I think that is something that these guys are going to have to put a show on to make sure that it's not talked about in such a negative form. In some ways, I think of Ollie Pope as a round peg in a in a square hole or, or the other way around, whatever it is. Um, a creative, imaginative, one-day player, a brilliant T20 player um, who's been moulded into a test number three or has had to mould himself into a test number three. This could be uh, an opportunity for him to cast off the shackles and uh, and use all that creativity and express himself in a way that, well, he does. He does in test cricket. But, uh, you know, it's it's ironic, isn't it, that, you know, how many of the of the baseball test cricketers are now being <laughs> moved into the one-day game? Yeah, it is. It's, it's strange. I'm not saying it's worrying, but... I quite like the fact that for the last four or five years, our red ball team and our white ball team have had not separate separate identities, but largely separate players playing for them because the the actual calendar and the fixture calendar that these guys are going to have to go through is very, very demanding and difficult if you play both formats. And we've seen that with the likes of Ben Stokes and Johnny Bairstow and Joe Root, that it can have it can have an effect and it can have an effect on the team if the all you know priority is test match cricket. And then one day cricket gets left behind. So I think there is a, a lot of pluses and positives that there are two separate teams. But I like this squad because of they are looking at English cricket and not trying to, you know, pigeonhole red ball and white ball. I think they're giving you, you know, they're giving these guys a chance. You know, right? You you've done well in Test cricket over the course of the last twelve months. You know, we, we see you as a as potential white ball players. Let's have a look at you. But we're also looking at. You know, India in in January, February, and March, and I think because of that, it ticks a lot of boxes. That you see that this new baseball era, if you want to call it that way, that England's number of one, two, and three potentially going to do that one, two, and three in the fifty over competition and see if that works. And I think it, it, it does work for both. That there are competitive cricket inside, you know, Crawley, Duckett, and Pope, and I think and Ollie Pope especially. I, I'm intrigued to see where this goes because I think he is he is undoubtedly a, a, a talented talented young young player um, and I think the next stage of his development which Ollie will say right I want to play one day cricket I want to show you that I'm not just a number three test batter for England I'm not just a, a, a red ball cricketer I am a white ball player um, and you know give me a chance and I'll show you and he's now got his chance so let's see how it goes. Where do you think Sam Curran's at confidence wise? I'm not sure I'm not sure I think I think Sam Curran needs a good tour for a number of reasons. One, we know the talent that Sam's got. Two, he could go to India in the test matches if his confidence is built up after having a good West Indies tour in December because England are potentially going to have to have an all-rounder that can bat and Sam might have to fill that number seven spot and number eight spot and balance the attack out with two spinners, two seamers, depending on how Ben goes in the test matches. So I think for a whole host of reasons, Sam Curran, I think, needs a good tour of the Caribbean just to, just to sort of kickstart his winter. And if it does, it'll be great because Sam will have the Caribbean. If he does well, then there's a potential he could go to India with England and the test matches. And if he goes over there and does OK, and that, that'll springboard him into, obviously, the IPL, where 
you know, we've got to remember this young man captained an IPL franchise last last year on multiple times. Not many, not many England or not many overseas players captain IPL franchises. So it just shows you what the Indians think of Sam. And I think if he does that, it'll be a great winter for him. But it starts here, starts in Antigua, and he's got to force his way into that England side and then really, I think, take the next phase of his career by the scruff of the neck and demand that he is front and centre of the England cricket team. And if he does it, it'll be great to see because we know he's he's, he's supremely talented. Tell you about uh, Harmy, fascinating that this tour as a shop window, could not be better placed because the IPL auction takes place a couple of days after this tour finishes. So, you know, there is that as well to, to bear yeah. in mind that might be that a few is... IPL franchises watching. Absolutely. And that's not just from an England point of view. How many times when we were when we had the West Indies series last time, the five T20s, you know, the Rotham Powells and one or two others, the big bowler Shepherd and one or two others got IPL contracts off the back of Built in England, basically, you know, you know, Powell himself, he bowled some nice overs, and then he, he got he hit twenty odd in one over, and he was like sixes raining in Barbados, and off the back of that series, he got an IPL contract. So I'm sure the West Indies selection unit will be saying, right, it's not just about beating England. You know, if you want to earn the big bucks, you show how good you are, and all of a sudden, I, you know, India's watching, and I think that is another tick in the box for a positivity of this tour. Uh, just a reminder, you can hear live and exclusive ball-by-ball commentary of England's three ODIs and those five T20s uh, right here on TalkSport 2, getting underway on Sunday afternoon at 12.30. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison as we continue to look ahead to England's white ball tour of the West Indies, which is exclusively live here on TalkSport 2 with the ODI series beginning this Sunday from 12.30. And uh, delighted to say, as promised... We're joined live by Michelle St. Patrick Hewitt from the Caribbean Cricket Podcast, who has had a busy week. When doesn't he have a busy week talking about matters West Indian cricket? Let's begin, shall we, Mash, with um, the Darren Bravo story and uh, Desmond Haynes uh, explaining the omission of Bravo, who then said that he would take a break from cricket. He obviously took his exclusion very personally, which is always a bad move, I find, in cricket selection. But... Um, yeah, I mean, I I heard you say three times you, that you didn't want to diss Desmond Haynes uh, before going on to diss him. Okay, listen, <laughs> thanks. First things first, thanks for having me on. I try to, I try my best to be to be balanced in these scenarios, but um, with the greatest of respects to Desmond Haynes, and I really mean that, I think there's somewhat of a misstep, misstep with this particular decision. I think fans on the whole have been willing to back him in most of the decisions he's made. But what he's done with the Darren Bravo situation is, I've got no problem, actually, with omitting Darren Bravo if the selection criteria was made clear prior to your domestic tournament, right? So similarly for England, if you have the Royal London One Day Cup and whatever other formats are deemed relative or relevant, sorry, to picking an England ODI side, if it's clear that at 34 years old, you are no longer applicable for international cricket or an ODI side, make that clear prior to Darren Bravo going on to score the most runs in the domestic tournament that directly leads into West Indies ODI selection. And it's caused quite a furore in West Indies cricket simply because there's players who have been selected who are one year younger than him or 18 months younger than him. And it just, there's too many question marks about it. And, 
by no means am I suggesting that Darren Bravo is the answer to fixing West Indies woes. <laughs> if, if that if that was the answer, then it's obviously been staring us in the face all this time. But I think when you're a side like the West Indies, I, with such a shallow talent pool, I just don't understand why you'd almost shoot yourself in the foot, so to speak, when you have an experienced player that can maybe help mould some of these younger players that we're being told that we're investing in. I mean, England are investing in some some younger players, but do you jettison experience completely when you claim that you're investing in younger players? I, I just don't think it's a wise strategy. Yeah, and, it, and you, you look at it, do you, do you think it's, it's, there's a personal element to this? Because... England are looking at two years' time in the Champions Trophy. The West Indies have got, obviously, aren't in that, so it's going to be four years' time. Um, so you can see them going from a, for, the, for the younger model, but you've got to build something. You need a concrete foundation, and surely that's got to be with experienced players and helping youngsters mould them into the next phase of, of what you're trying to achieve, which is qualifications for the next World Cup. Do you think there's a personal element between Gaines, the West Indies selectors, and... Obviously, Darren Bravo. Do you know what? I, I, and as the lead selector, Desmond Haynes has to take the pelters, right? But there's actually four people in the selection group. There's Desmond Haynes, there's Roland Butcher, there's Shea Hope as the ODI captain, and then there's um, Darren Sammy as the ODI coach. So as much as, Des, uh, as much as Des has taken the pelters for it, for all we know, he just got outvoted. For all we know, he wasn't actually in the majority group, so to speak, or, or quorum within that kind of four to say, let's exclude Darren Bravo. But then he's got to go to the public and come up with the explanation as to as to why Darren Bravo has been omitted. But as you say, Harmi, yeah, West Indies have got four years to, to plan for. But again, I just think it's short-sighted, right? So what's the plan? To Are we, are we going to be winning for four years straight? Um, like where, as things currently stand, South Africa and Zimbabwe will go to the World Cup automatically right and then it's the next best eight teams that doesn't include the West Indies I looked at the rankings the the next team above West Indies if we were to overhaul them is Afghanistan and even to do that we'd have to go on an unbelievable run of OGI cricket form which we haven't shown in about 10 years to somehow overturn that gap between us and Afghanistan so the chances are we're going to the World Cup qualifiers again in, in 2026 to try and get to 2027 and granted, it's a an, it's an expanded uh, World Cup this time. So you'd think that West Indies could take one of the four places on offer outside of the automatic qualifiers. But we saw what happened in the last ones. Netherlands beat us. Scotland beat us. So so it's not like we can take the qualifiers for granted. So I just think it's it doesn't make a lot of sense to say we're building to 2027 when actually we have to win now. We, we have to develop a winning mentality now. We can't just wait till 2027 and hope it all clicks. Um, so I, I just feel it's short-sighted. Okay, three questions in one here. First of all, uh, a year or two ago, you said you'd be happy never to see Shimron Hetmeyer in a West Indies shirt again when he couldn't make it to the airport in time for a World Cup. So is that repaired, his, his, uh, that, his relationship? Alzari Joseph, as vice-captain, uh, fascinates me. And third... Where's O'Shane Thomas been for the last couple of years? Every single one of those questions is a podcast in itself. Let me, first and foremost, I realised I didn't directly answer Harmy's question. So I'll just quickly say, is it personal? Harmy, I'll just say to that, that there's no, 
the, the evidence for cricket logic in this decision is sceptical. So it makes us think it may be a bit personal. Who knows? So Shimon Hetmeyer, um, he has been recalled from the wilderness. Um, he came back for the Injus series and didn't perform. Um, I think he failed three times in the LDIs. In the recent domestic Super 50, he failed seven times out of eight. And by failed, I mean scores under 20. I think he got 150. So he's not in good form. But Shimon Hetmeyer's too talented and our talent pool is too shallow to just not persist with him. Um, so we're going to have to persist with him. I don't know how long uh, the length of rope is that he's got to keep on failing, but it's almost like we're in a position where now he's back. We don't dare drop him because he could easily just turn his back on West Indies cricket again. So if, if anything, all the powers with Shimron. It's not actually with the selectors. Um, we almost need him more than he needs us, if that makes any sense. So um, that's why he's back. Alzari Joles, if they see captaincy potential in. So Alzari was actually a uh, captain at schools level in uh, it's Antigua. Uh, Leeward Islands made the decision this year to give him the captaincy in Super 50. He captained them to the runners-up position in the tournament. So they clearly see um, captaincy material in him. His exterior doesn't suggest that. Obviously, he's kind of, he gives off like a bit of a surly, moody exterior, but... From speaking to all the players in the Leeward Islands uh, team that got uh, the runners-up position, they look up to him. They see him as a good uh, leader of men, and West Indies have rewarded him with the vice-captaincy. Does that mean he'll one day be a West Indies captain? Who knows? But um, it's good to see them trying to elevate the youngsters into and mould them as as leaders. Um, and the third one was... Uh, I'm trying to remember what your third one was. O'Shane uh, Thomas. O'Shane Thomas. O'Shane Thomas, right. So, O'Shane Thomas <laughs> has had historic issues around fitness he has struggled to maintain the the optimum weight in international cricket and conditioning that would allow him to excel at the highest level as i understand it as kind of almost in almost in tune with or adjacent to the fact that a lot of his t20 contracts started to dry up around that time he started to realize i need to take my cricket more seriously I heard stories about him hiring a personal trainer and so on and so forth. He came over to England to play some league cricket and the Cricket West Indies, like S&C coaches, gave him like kind of like a routine that he had to follow whilst playing league cricket over here. And the idea is, is that they have basically said to O'Shane, we are willing to invest in you. At the end of the day, O'Shane Thomas at his absolute optimum bowls 90 plus. And Harmy well knows, but any international team that has a bowler that has the potential to bowl 90 plus, you've got to harness that. And what they've effectively said to O'Shane is we'll work with you as long as it takes to get you back to where you need to be. Is he there yet? No, but he was in the India series, didn't play any games, but was just in camp. So I guess it helped that he was in a high-performance camp alongside the first team, training day in, day out. He's just played with the Leeward Islands in the uh, Super 50 tournament, and I think this is all part of a process. He still doesn't look like the old Shane who burst on the scene, but he is cranking 90-plus again. His radar is slowly getting back to where it needs to be. So suffice to say, I would expect him to play some games against England, and I'd expect him to bowl a few snorters. Whether he can put that together in a 10-over spell, well, that remains to be seen, but he's on the he's on the road to recovery, so to speak. Yeah, we've seen him in, I think it was 2019 when we were over there. He literally bowled every lunchtime and every every tea time. And I think the S&C coaches were around him and he looked 
he, he's a big lad. He's never going to be a small lad. He's always going to be a big lad. He's never going to, from a visual point of view, look as though he's going to he's going to be a Usain Bolt and run 100 metres in, in nine and a half seconds. But when we've seen him bowling, you have to persevere with him. You have to give him mm. everything that you can because when you've seen him in the in the white ball series after that, he was a handful and he is a real handful. So from that point of view, then that comes on to my next question about where the West Indies at from a strength point of view going into the T20 World Cup, which is not far away and less than sort of eight months away. Well, somebody like are the West Indies invested in that because they see O'Shane Thomas as a key cog in, in bowling 90 plus miles an hour, even just for four overs? Because from a franchise point of view, yes, he's possibly lost his way. But from a West Indies point of view, like you said before about the talent pool, you're going to need bowlers of that type to stand up and be counted if you want to have some, some reckoning in this T20 World Cup coming. Yeah, 100%. And I think what they, um, the reason why they're prepared to invest in O'Shane, and I hope they stay the course with him, is that at his best, he's an X-factor bowler. And I think that's what it's about. It's about, yeah. particularly in the shorter formats, who can you turn to that can offer something the other cricketers can't, right? So if, you, if you've got a mystery spinner, you've got a mystery spinner. If you've got a brilliant leg spinner, you've got a brilliant leg spinner. But in the West Indies, we've only got Alzari Joseph, who can bowl 90-plus, um, do the kind of enforcer spell, the person you turn to to magic a wicket out of nothing. In O'Shane, they have another bowler who could, who could do that. And I think they've weighed up the kind of costs and benefits and said, well, if we can get him back to his best there are few international teams that would want to face a new ball pair of Alzari Joseph and O'Shane Thomas, both going at 90 plus if, and the if is so big, if they can get O'Shane back to what he can. Is Desi the legend? Uh, you know, I got to know him quite well when he was playing for, for Western Province in South Africa. And, um, and he is a he is a magnificent human being and just a, a lovely, lovely man. So, So the two questions are, is he the right man? Uh, and it's a thankless task, isn't it? I mean, being lead selector for anybody is a is an almost impossible job. Is he the right man going forward then? And the second question is, who is Kjorn Otley? So is, is Des the right man? I just think that when you are the lead selector for a region as fraught as the, the Caribbean and a team with so many disparate islands and countries like the, the, the West Indies, you can't afford to make one misstep. You might get forgiven for one, maybe even for two. But so much of being the head coach, so much of being the captain, so much of being the lead selector is about communication. In in Desi's case, for example, okay, let me give an example of how the West Indies works, as I'm sure you both well know. Shane Dowrich has been recalled to the West Indies ODI side. Now, there will be people in the Caribbean who will say, what on earth is Shane Dowrich doing in the West Indies ODI side? He's, not, he's got no 50-over pedigree to speak of. Yes, he's just had a good domestic tournament. So, of course, the first thing that people say is, well, Des has done that because Des is from Barbados and Shane Dowrich is from Barbados. I'm not saying that's the reason, but that's how the Caribbean works. So, really, when you're a lead selector, you almost have to be a statesperson. It, it's not as simple as just go and select a squad because every single decision you make will be scrutinised based on where's that player from? Where are you from? Is that the reason why you've picked them? Or what personal agenda is going on here? So it's not about for me whether Des is the right person. Anybody in that position will be questioned as, as to whether they're the right person. So all you can take care of is 
is your communication right? And that's where I think he's struggled. I think he's struggled to effectively communicate the decisions he's making when he will know himself when he got omitted from the West Indies side. Sometimes things are political before before they're based on cricket sense in the, in the Caribbean. So he, he should know that more than anybody else. Um, and then in terms of Kiln Otley, so Kiln Otley has actually played for the West Indies before. During the, when we went to Bangladesh in 2021, during the pandemic, uh, about 12 to 14 of the first choice players pulled out. And the West Indies had to go deep, deep, deep into their address book to find players who wanted to go. <laughs> and um, Kiln Otley answered the call. Uh, and he went to Bangladesh. We lost that series 3-0, which was part of the ODI Super League, which is probably why we ended up in the World Cup qualifiers. But um, we lost that series 3-0. Now, if you speak to, again, speak to people in Trinidad and Tobago, and they'll say that as an under-19 player, Kion Otley was very, very talented, which is often the story in West Indies cricket. People are very talented at under-19 level, and then something goes wrong in the transition between 19s into, into first-class cricket and so on and so forth. Again, he's had a good he's had a good super fifty. Darren Bravo was the top run scorer. Kiel Notley was the third highest run scorer. So in some senses, he does he deserves his chance. The only question mark is he's thirty three and got in. Darren Bravo's thirty four and hasn't got in. So it just raises questions in, in that regard. But um, yeah, stylish uh, left handed bat. My only concern is whether he will succumb to the kind of age old either not scoring or hitting fours and sixes, and whether he can transition that to the international level against an England team that looks hungry to prove a point. So, so we shall see. And finally, um, do you buy into the, the concept that the, the results don't matter? It's about progress as individuals and progress as a team. This, this series, the, the ODIs and the T20s, results are, are secondary as long as you, there's progress in, in <laughs> I suppose, the development of individuals. Yes and no, only if, I think everyone's start point has to be, do they think it is realistic that the West Indies can get enough ranking points before the 2026 World Cup qualifiers to avoid having to go to them? I think that's probably unrealistic. But if we believe, I mean, mathematically, they can do it, right? So on the basis that mathematically they can do it, they have to beat England. Um, But I suspect that people say, actually, looking for just green shoots of progress is more important than, than whether they beat England in this series. But to be fair, I'll flip it back on you and Harmy. Do you think England need to win this series? Because of what happened in the World Cup, we're in, a, we're in similar kind of situations here. We didn't even make it to the World Cup, and now we've, we've selected a squad that has got a lot of scrutiny, and it's almost seen as a fresh start. But England had a horrendous World Cup. Do they need to win this series? Yeah, I think they do. I think England have got to win this series because I think it's it's important that England are starting a new cycle, just like the West Indies, like everybody else did. England are coming off the back of being world champions. England are coming off the back of a, a, a poor World Cup. Um, and England have got a rebuild because the characters that they're replacing are going to take some, their, their, their shoes are going to take some some filling because you're talking the likes of Mo and Ali, Ben Stokes, Joe Root, all these players who are being so successful. So I think England do need to win this series to get some... Not credibility, because they had credibility, because they were a fantastic white ball side. But I think it is so important that England start off the next phase, which is to 2025 Champions Trophy, with Josh Butler leading from the front with example, and England winning, England probably winning 3-0. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> in that case, I'll there's take a two-one defeat. There's also there's a hunger in these players that are going in there, so I think there's there's more on it for them to develop and try and keep into this England side as opposed to the West Indies trying to build to build a foundation for something to build on. England's foundation is there. I think the West Indies have got to try and find some way of finding a foundation to then start mm. getting some positivity. I think England's is a different matter. Well, uh, Harmy's just added some spice to this series here, so uh, <laughs> I will respectfully, I will respectfully take a two-one defeat, and, <laughs> and we can shake hands on that. <laughs> and finally, I'd just like to encourage all of our listeners to, if you're not already a subscriber, do subscribe and listen to the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. Uh, you know, you can hear just how great value Mash is, and you can get a whole lot more of him. Uh, by listening to the cricket, uh, the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. Thanks for your time once again, Mash. No problem. Thanks very much. And that was Michelle St. Patrick Hewitt from the Caribbean Cricket Podcast. And a reminder again, you can hear live and exclusive ball-by-ball commentary of England's three ODIs and five T20s against the West Indies right here on TalkSport 2 with the action getting underway this Sunday at 12.30. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and Double Ashes winner Steve Harmison. And next up, we'll be joined by the PCA chair, James Harris, to look at the release of the 2024 fixtures. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. You're listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and Double Ashes winner, Steve Harmison. If you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed, now available via the free TalkSport app or wherever you get your podcasts. And it's that time now, as promised at the top of the show, to speak to James Harris, PCA chair, and uh, of course, Glamorgan, current Glamorgan all-rounder. James, we want to talk to you about uh, the county fixtures and the comments that have been attributed to the PCA, I think, I don't know whether it was directly to you or not, that that there's a certain amount of disregard for player welfare, particularly with just with the workload and, and you know, back-to-back T20 blast games. Um, so let's just clarify that. 
Uh, it's it's an impossible task, of course, fitting four formats into an English summer. So I'm sure you've got sympathies with those whose job it is. But do you think that the players are being undermined? Oh, look, I think there's there's a few bits that Brand have been taken out of context from from the sort of statement we put out. Um, you know, one of the articles I read after we put out that statement was sort of having the PCA making, you know, accusations at the schedulers and, and that they were trying to, you know, not take into account some of the players' uh, welfare and whatnot. I don't necessarily think that's the case. I think we've just got a huge amount of cricket to fit into a window. And what's come with that, you know, in the ever-increasing scrutiny on players, you've got every ball is now, you know, in every ball in every game is out there being watched and being recorded for everyone to see. And I think some of the the issues lie with the travel involved, which I know hasn't changed. It's been the same for a long time. But um, but there's some there's some certainly some periods in the schedule where some bits of it are just not designed for high performance. And you know that's that's something that we're striving for. And, and as the game evolves uh, and the game evolves around the world, I think we need to adapt and evolve our, our game here to to be able to sustain it long into the future. Yeah, James, you, you said that, you know, the travel is not something new. You know, it was, I'm from Durham, so, you know, everywhere was miles <laughs> away for us. So, you know, we got used to the travel. We knew the travel and what was sort of pushed on us when the fixtures came out and everything that went with that. But there was a flow to it in the past with four co- uh, competitions and it's set around sort of broadcasting and everything like that. Do you think from a player's point of view, it's changed now that it has gone a bit too far that it's it's it doesn't flow as much as what it probably did twenty years ago when the travel was still there and people were playing a lot of cricket, but the actual flow where you played a four day game and a one day game at the end of it, now it's not like that. Yeah, very much so. And look, we've there's been changes to the schedule, you know, since that point, the hundred being the most obvious thing where where we more or less took August out and we pushed everything else kind of around that. I mean, look, I just to run you through one of the examples from a certainly from a Glamorgan point last year, you know, one of the weeks or one of the little little bits around, you know, where these kind of competitions did overlap. We'd have played a, a T20 in Cardiff on a Friday night. Um, we'd have spent Saturday driving from Cardiff to Durham to play four days, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We spent Thursday driving from Durham to Chelmsford to play a T20 on Friday. We spent Saturday driving home to get a T20 on Sunday at Glamorgan. We then went back to the Oval. We went back to Cardiff. And there's too many bits that right now don't work for keeping people fit, keeping people healthy, having the best product on the field and, and ultimately showcasing the game that we love in the best way possible. When you when you look at the way that has come, the, the, the high performance that you want to you strive and you get to, like I mentioned before, the traveling has always been there. Formats have always been similar. But in my day, and I keep here when I say I go back to my day, but squads were bigger. Squads were like 22, 23 members. Now it's not as much. So it's a difficult thing to ask the, the current players to stay with high performance, especially a lot of young players, and go with the schedule that has gone with. So in an ideal world, what would the PCA like, the players now, like to, to do and change that? So this is one of the real big challenges, I think, from a PCA standpoint. And, and we were quite strong this week in putting out a statement to say, look, we don't think this is sustainable into the long term. Now, one of the big challenges we've got, um, you know, is the membership has been ever growing and diversifying to somewhat, you know, with the game. We've got batsmen, fast bowlers, spinners, some like red ball, some like white ball, some are, you know, defensive top order batsmen. You've got guys who come in at six and whack it out the ground. Everybody kind of wants something different. 
Um, and this is one of the real big challenges to come out and say, as a collective voice, to say, this is what we want, because the membership is kind of so diverse in that sense of their of their skill set. So that's one of our big challenges. What we know right now is for the vast majority, this isn't sustainable because you've got a lot of players playing all sorts, all formats, all competitions. The clubs are desperate to succeed in all of those formats and, and competitions and want their best players playing in as many games as possible. So, um, so yeah, this is one of the challenges. Yeah, and to just to, to go on from that, is, is does the the younger players do they get their voice heard? Because, well, if my, my my example, I'll probably say from an example point of view, the players at the bigger clubs, you know, the likes of Surrey and uh, you know, in, in Warwickshire and all of the, the sort of big test counties that have got bigger squads because their financial resources are a lot obviously more powerful. But the clubs that have the smaller squads, the clubs that players who are a lot younger than what you know the the bigger sort of household names that the bigger clubs are. Are they the ones that are needing to be heard more? Because actually, it's their high performance, it's their neck on the line that is probably more important than some of the other clubs where they they get rested for forty eight games. Where some of the little, the younger players, they don't get a rest because their club can't afford to rest them. Absolutely. Um, so you know, this is part of of the whole thing. There is you know part of with. The diversity of membership is like you talk about the diversity within the clubs. You've got some of the bigger clubs with bigger squads, more resources can rotate more than you've got other clubs, you know, who aren't flush at the moment. You know, financial conditions are tough, you know, for a lot. And, and they're, you know, having to push out those players game on game. And, and you know, you're having situations where, you know what it's like, you have great plans at the start of the year where you have enough bowlers or something like that. You get one or two go down first couple of weeks of the year and then everybody else has got to try and carry that workload. And, there's lots of things. There's, you know, there's there's the travel issue with guys driving and we haven't got a, a brilliant probably travel policy in place across the game. There's guys traveling, you know, late at night and various things between games and whatnot. And and I I think there's a push from our side to go, something's got to give here and, and we need to all collectively work together to try and find the best possible sort of outcome or, you know, to keep our game as strong as it possibly can be. The thing I'm worried about more than anything, and as we see you know, T20 tournaments fly up around the world and the amount of money that people can make is if we don't go and adapt, we're making it very easy for some of our better players to go, I don't need this. I don't need all this cricket. I don't need to be held, you know, to the counties to to be held accountable to play game after game. I can make far more money if I just go and play abroad. And that's something I desperately don't want to happen because I want our best players, our best domestic players to play for their counties in this country so people can come and watch them if they want to. And I don't want to get to a point where people are being driven away because it's an easy decision because we're not prepared to adapt to to make the game a global game, which is what it's you know ever, increase, ever increasingly becoming. And so you or the PCA or both of you, um, well, you are the PCA, um, in a position to offer an alternative solution. I mean, if you, you know, if you, if you say to the, the businessmen, this is not sustainable from a playing point of view, and they say to you, Okay, play less, pay less, or I mean, are you are you consulted? Are are you in a position to to put an alternative plan for the summer to them and say, okay, you just said let's work together, but I, I assume from a playing perspective, you you would hopefully be in a situation where you say this is what we regard as the optimum playing number of playing days and travel days in order for us to perform at our best? Or do you just say, okay, we'll play as much as you like, but don't expect us to be at our best? Uh, the, the worry about the last bit of that is 
put as many games as you like and we won't be at our best, I think is is a terrible kind of route to go down on a, on a sustainability standpoint. And we're just going to break people and people are just not going to play. Yeah. Or they're going to go abroad and play. They're going to play in different competitions. That's not the route we need. Now, Andrew Strauss's review obviously came out and he made a lot of these recommendations or that paper made a lot of recommendations in, in you know, we've got to find more space in the schedule to make sure players are fresh, make sure they're firing in all cylinders. Like Steve will tell you, like we need a core of fast bowlers in this country to put out an England shirt so we can compete with some of the best nation, you know, test nations around. It's very easy or, or players are having to make choices when they're young to go, I could get into that bracket as a, as a really fast bowler, but I can guarantee that I can be a good bowler at a slightly lesser pace in a candy shirt for a very long time. And people are making that choice. And this comes not just on a playing point, this comes to other staff and umpires and ground staff and you know things we haven't touched on yet in terms of how much workload they're under. Some of our pitches in this country aren't quite as good as they should be because the workload of the wickets is so high. There's so many things, I think, that fall into this that we're playing so much that we're not able to put the best product on the field, which I think is a, is a really important thing. And is that the message that you are trying to drive and we need to drive is that less sometimes is more and better and less will get us the better pitches. Less will get us the better umpiring decisions and definitely less will get us you know, a better quality from some of our younger players who we want to go through the ranks of second team, first team into international Lions and international honours. Is that is that the message you got to keep reaffirming to the ECB that you know sometimes less is better quality? Big time. Um, I think you look. You raised a bit of a point, and I sort of raised as well. But the umpiring, the groundsmen, the ground staff, the wickets—all of this kind of plays into one picture of the game that professional cricket in this country is putting out on the field. And I think that, yeah, look, a little bit of less will be more and is more. It's not just the ECB. This is, you know, we know that how complex the county structure is and, and that the counties have ultimately got the biggest sign-off on on a lot of this stuff. Um, it's by no means just the ECB. So we need to bring the counties into this. We need to bring the memberships into this. There's people, there's memberships across the country with massively differing views on some love rebel cricket, don't like the 100 yeah. Um, aren't prepared to give up any sort of Red Bull cricket at all and take you know a little bit of Red Bull cricket out of the calendar. That's what they desperately don't want. But I think if we can try and explain how this whole structure works, and you know I've heard a few times from from different members that they'd happily see you know some of their best players not play and play some of the younger players just to have more cricket. But at the same time, they're they're the same members at the end of the season when perhaps results, a couple of results don't go a team's way who are very up in arms that their team isn't performing how they'd like. So. We need to find, I can't reiterate this, a long time. And this will be one of my challenges probably in the next sort of year or so that I'll kind of keep this role for uh, before I hand it off to somebody else. And, you know, I think that we can all work together and find a better structure so that we can have a better, stronger game going forward. James, at the beginning of uh, the season, Alex Stewart spoke to us on this programme about the relationship that freelance cricketers have with their counties And he didn't mince his words. He said they want to go off and play in the PSL, in the CPL. They want to go and play in this tournament, that tournament. And they want to come back to the Oval and uh, use our physios and use our nets and use our trainers and use our play. And that's uh, not sustainable. That's not going to work for the counties. We get them for six weeks for the blast. And uh, and and that's it. If they're a T20 specialist, and yet they've got a contract with uh, with Surrey, um, which kind of led us to speculate to a point where. England's best players or most marketable, most T20 specialists become like Novak Djokovic and, you know, and travel the world with their own team of uh, of trainers and 
and ball throwers and uh, and physiotherapists and and whatever. And it just, you know, this idea that professional cricketers could be without a, a base, you know, and counties could say, we love you and, you know, you came through the system, but you're not worth it to us anymore. I mean, it's a very bleak scenario. Sorry to be uh, so depressing. Look, this is an ever-changing world. I mean, look, if I was personally in that boat now where I was at a, at a massive IPL contract, I'd probably be thinking like that. I'd probably have my own team. Um, because you know, I suppose, when you get to that stage, how much your worth is. And that if you're not on the park personally, then you're you know not making any money from that standpoint. So if I was in that bracket, I'd definitely be looking like that. I mean, there's a few interesting conversations to have around this. Do we need to look at how that whole structure works? Yes, probably. But at the same time, Alec and Surrey doesn't have to sign those players. He's not obliged to sign those players. If he thinks it doesn't work for Surrey, then he hasn't got to offer them a contract. But obviously, he desperately wants to keep a Sam Curran, a Jason Roy, a Tom Curran. You know, you could go through the list of the, the fabulous players they've got there. But this is how, this is the evolution of the game and this is what we're seeing. And there's only more money coming into this, into the game around the world in, in T20 franchises. There's been rumours of Saudi Arabia and various other places. And, you know, we're very likely going to be in a situation in a year, two, three, four, five years where we've got massive investment from, you know, outside into the hundred in this country that could change the landscape again. That could give the counties a lot more money that could, you know, do all sorts of things. So this is the need to kind of be flexible in this changing world that, you know, we haven't known before, you know, realistically the last two, three, four, five years, it's kind of completely ripping up what we know to be, a, you know, a professional cricketer. Um, it's not just, what it has been, you know, all the way through history where you'd, you know, try and play well for your county and then try and represent England as many times as you possibly could and, and take pride wearing that shirt. That's still a massive thing, but you've got this carrot that comes along with that now that your earnings capacity from playing T20 franchise cricket is massive. And and we've got to try and somehow navigate all these changes. And James, just the, the, you know, talked about around the world, you know, the job that you do, chair the PCA and you're looking after the, you know, the governance of, of the cricketers in this game. Do you speak to people in your position around the, around the world and different other um, organisations from the likes of Australia and South Africa and et cetera? And are they finding the, the world that we know changing in their domestic games and their domestic structure, which is, it's, it just means it's not just in England? Yeah, look, um, in terms of the people in my particular position in various sort of jurisdictions around the world, not necessarily, but I'm getting that from a lot of the sort of overseas players who are here who play a part in their member organisations. So Dan Worrell, for example, um, who's done a lot of stuff with um, with the ACA in Australia and talking through, you know, how they deal things. Will Williams, who's done a lot with um, the New Zealand Players Association and things like that. So how they're dealing with things. I think, look, we know this as an international team as well as a county system. We play more cricket than basically anybody. Um, so it brings with it all its own challenges that are that are sort of slightly unique to us. Do you know I mean the, the IPL cuts into our summer season where it doesn't for just about everybody else and there are a lot of kind of unique challenges i suppose this side of this side of the pond and, and playing as much as we do and where we do and in the certain time frames of the year uh where our summer sits so um look all of those conversations are incredibly valuable and, and you know i think everyone's just trying to find a way to navigate what is an incredibly changing world and look the bit the desperate the thing we desperately don't want is we don't want to lose a ben stokes a harry brook completely yeah. so we, we need to keep them playing here i'm sure everyone will kind of agree with that so you know, how can we make sure that we can sustain all of this as, as well as we can? And I think we need to find some flexibility in the schedule amongst, you know, a, a few other things as well to, to kind of make that work. And you mentioned, James, what Jim, baffles but... me is um, how you have all of these concerns and these enormous 
uh, worries. They're not your personal worries, but but you are the, the, the PCA chair. And you still manage to find time to worry about how you're going to get someone caught at second slip. It tell you what, it's a really interesting role. Uh, I'm sort of, well, coming up to sort of three years in it now, and it's been a brilliant bit of learning for me. I think just to understand the conversations that have to happen around the game before you go and bowl that first ball at 11 o'clock. Do you know what I mean? I think a lot of players, for the most part, just kind of think that all this stuff just happens. You know what I mean? There's always umpires there. There's always, you know, lines marked on the pitch and all this. But all of this gets talked about in ludicrous number of meetings. Um, and a few of them I happen to sit in sort of with PCA, ECB colleagues and stuff. Um, it's been a really enlightening couple of years and one I've really enjoyed. Um, there's a there's a huge bit sort of in this last year, I suppose, that I'll be in this position to try and navigate us as well as we possibly can. There's um, all sorts of things with the sort of new CPA and the regional partnership agreement with the women's game, which is going from strength to strength. And we've got some similar challenges. We've got some different challenges. Look, in the women's game at the moment, we're looking at they probably need a little bit more cricket. Do you mean in their domestic schedule in the summer? We're having some of the opposite challenges from that side. So, um, yeah, it keeps me busy, but um, it's very enjoyable. I was just about to say, that was going to be your last question. Do you enjoy it? But I'll, I'll, I'll change it to where do you see, where do you want it to go in the next 12 months? You say you you enjoy it. You sound as though you enjoy it. You do it very, very well on behalf of somebody that used to, obviously, you know, play cricket. Uh, have somebody as, as passionate as you are talking about it. I think the players around the, world, around the country um, or in safe hands and where would you like it to be in 12 months when you do hand it over it's going to be a different landscape to when you took it took it over where would James Harris like to see the next person come over there you go it's all yours now yeah you can sweat your brow and say I've done the best job as I possibly can be but what would the be what would it be over the next 12 months I think the first bit I mean I came into this role on the back of Daryl Mitchell who kind of navigated the game through the COVID pandemic and everything else and I think the first little period was, geez, I wonder what my kind of challenge is going to be or where's my you know, time going to be spent doing this. But first of all, I'm incredibly grateful in the game. This game has given me you know, more than I could have ever dreamt for in my sort of youngish life so far. So I just want to make sure that I can leave the game in the best place possible. My personal view and talking to others and other people involved in the game at the moment is that we try and secure the game in this country for the kind of medium to long term. And, and what does that look like? In my world at the moment, that looks like making sure we can keep as many of our best players playing in the UK as possible, as often as possible, because there is lure from the rest of the world and, and money talks. So to do that, I think we've got to look at how the game is in this country at the moment and, and the schedule and everything that goes around it. And I, we need to make it as accommodating as possible for these players. Without going too far, we can't have them dictate the whole thing, absolutely. But if we can make the game as accommodating as possible for our best players, we'll get them playing here more Hopefully, they'll be a lot happier. Hopefully, that'll drag the next group of players into the game because they're watching. They get to go to Durham and see Ben Stokes play a couple of games or they get to go and watch him play for the Northern Superchargers. They get to go and see Harry Brook. They get to go and see you know, Sam Curran and Tom Curran playing down at the Oval because that's what drives the next generation of talented players to, to take up the game and to play. So, yeah, look, for I just want to see this game thrive, to be honest, and once I finish playing and once I give up this role, I'd happily go and be a spectator and I want to be able to do that and um, and really be proud of, of the game that we all love. Brilliant. James Harris, it's a first conversation. It's your first appearance on this show. You've been absolutely uh, inspiring. Uh, you may not always need the game, but I tell you what, the game will always need people like you. Don't leave it. Well, thank you very much. Thank you both. That was James Harris, PCA chair and current Glamorgan bowler, all-rounder, as I described him. You're listening to The Cricket Collective.
here on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthelburn, Durham Hall of Famer, Steve Harmison. And a reminder, you can now watch us on YouTube as well, if you're not doing so already. Head over to the TalkSport Cricket YouTube channel and uh, subscribe. Now then, Harmy, we're rounding up uh, the week's other stories, and it would be completely remiss of us not to talk about Sussex. Not just Ali or born and bred Sussex, a player who's left and uh, amongst all the other players, but now Chris Adams, Ian Gould and Sarah Taylor have also left. Uh, there's an exodus and all is clearly not well at Hove. Uh, we can speculate and we can do so, I, I, well, you can anyway, um, informatively, because um, you have some knowledge of uh, of those involved. As I said, we'd love to have spokespeople from, from either side, if there are two sides, maybe there are three sides. So what's going on? I think you would love to be able to fly in the wall and, you know, in around the boardroom and the in the chairman coming out, was it John Philby saying insisting that Sussex future is bright. <laughs> I think there's a few members and few members of other counties might beg to differ on that one. And, and former players, you know, we work closely with Matt Pryor. He's been quite vocal on it. I know he's away at this moment in time, so he can't come on. Um, we've also we've also had a, a good relationship with Paul Fabris, and we'll, we'll we will get to speak to Fabi. I'm sure he will because he's been good with us on the on the Critic Collective, and it probably is right for nobody to say anything and batten down the hatches and you know let this you know, this little storm just blow over and then come out with a vision of where Sussex are trying to go. Um, but you know, Ali Orr is, is is a good player. I've I seen him back against Durham a couple of years ago. You know, when James Franklin left Durham and I went to help Neil Colleen for, for a couple of games, one of the games was against Sussex. And we joked about, you know, who was driving the minibus and other CRB check because of the amount of young players that were on show. And I came back on the collective and said, I've just witnessed some fantastic young talent at Sussex. So they've got the talent. And one of them was, was Ali O. He got run out in one of the games, got absolutely barbecued by, I think, um, his opening partner, Tom Haynes. But the way I watched this young boy, this young player hit the ball down the ground and you know stand up and really be aggressive. Like, right, I'm going to watch for this this kid. And he didn't have a very good year that last year. And to see him go to, to to Hampshire would be, I think, a real disappointment if I was a Sussex member because we are what we are from a financial point of view. But see, letting our young players, it's one thing letting our young players play and develop, but letting them go I'm sorry, that's that would be a no-no. And I look back, man, is at, at Durham and Durham lost their money, and all things was going going awry and going afoot. You know, you could easily have seen Durham potentially go out of business. You know, five international players left, but all of a sudden you look at, and this is where I'm so proud of my cricket club. So Ian Botham came in, Tim Bostock because he came the chair, the team of chief executive, and Marcus North came in as as director of cricket, and they really established the club. Built, you know, the youth side of it, which was always going to be you know, prosperous under under John Windows, and Durham built themselves back up slowly but surely with good management on the field, brilliant decisions. Um, and I look at Sussex and think, is there brilliant decisions being made? If you're letting people with the the experience of Ian Gould, Chris Adams, and what Sarah Taylor has gone through in the game, are you letting them leave the building because? something's not quite right or something is desperately not right, then for me, that's worrying if I was, if I'm a Sussex member. But like you said, there's more than one story to this, likely to be two, possibly three, but until the, the sort of meat is on the bones, shall we say, at this minute in time, Sussex looking absolute shambles because former players 
like Matt Pryor and one or two others are sticking the boot in. When Durham lost their money for mismanagement, I didn't see many of the former Durham players having a go at the players leaving or having a real kick at the club. Yes, we're disappointed, but we knew that there was a, a potential of it getting better because they've made good decisions. I think Sussex are going to need to make some good decisions pre and post Christmas to make sure that they're in a position to fight, you know, the good fight for 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 their county next summer. Um, but until we find it, we are where we are just speculating. We don't want to don't want to throw too many stones at the board or too many stones at the hierarchy because we don't know the finances of the club. But to let the talented young player leave like he has, some people will say we don't blame him because Hampshire might have offered him more money, better chance, better deal. You know, that's life, that's sport. But I would put up a bit of, I would hope they've put up a bit of a fight to try and keep him. And if that's the case, then great, fine, brilliant. If he wants to leave, let him go. But the stories are the sides of the stories. And obviously, we don't know. So that's just a speculation that we're finding. But it does look a mess at Sussex. Well, we should certainly revisit that story. We'll keep an eye on events at Hove and hope that uh, for everybody's sake, they can sort it out and, and start pulling in the same direction. You mentioned Durham a couple of times there. Uh, so let's move straight on to the appointment of Graham Onions as a uh, new lead bowling coach um, at Durham. It'll certainly be a very popular decision. Is, uh, is it a good cricketing one as well? Yeah, it's a good cricketing one. It'll good to see Captain Misery coming back. He's uh, he's a brilliant, he's an excellent coach. He studies the game. I think he's seen his, his love for the games is ridiculous. Um, I hope he's got a smile on his face. Takes a lot to get a smile on Graham Onions' face, I must admit. But to see him coming back, because I know he was doing a lot of travelling, travelling because his family was still in the north and he's back and forward to, to Lancashire. And the way the way Lancashire have, have handled it and then the way they spoke about him him leaving shows that he was a, a good employee of Lancashire County Cricket Club, not only as a player, but then as a coach. But I think the right thing has been, you know, the right agreement's been reached that Graham Onions comes back to, to Durham and... He takes over. He's got big shoes to fill because Neil Neil Colleen was an exceptional bowling coach, and to work closely again with with Alan Walker, who's been there from more or less from the very start. He's wax been there as a player and as a as a coach since 1992. So I'm pleased for for Graham that he's coming back and his family that the, the kids have got dad back in the area, um, and it's a nice fit. You know, Marcus North is obviously director of cricket of of Durham and. He played a lot of cricket in the northeast from a club point of view at Gateshead Fell, where Graham Onions grew up. So, you know, the connection between Graham Onions, Marcus North, and back at, at the Fell at, at Gateshead, um, and then working obviously with Durham, it, um, it's a nice fit for for Durham to get there to get one of their legends back, and it's and it's good to see him. And, and I'm sure Bonnie will do a, a brilliant job with what is um, a talented young bunch of bowlers. So fingers crossed that. You know, he does eventually get a smile on his face when he when he comes on. Because I think he's going to come on the show in the next week or so. So we'll pull him up on on that. Undoubtedly, one of the best bowlers Durham's ever produced, and hopefully now he's going to shape the future and and work with somebody that potentially could could take as many wickets as what he did. Okay, just two more points, and of course we have an informal, unwritten rule that we discuss the IPL. Very little, purely on the basis that there are a thousand other podcasts that uh, deal with all things IPL. But I have to ask you about um, the the brutal ruthlessness uh, that we often don't talk about. It's contract time in the IPL, and uh, you know there there is <laughs> reputations count for absolutely nothing. And uh, what do you make of 
the uh, release of Harry Brook by Sunrise at Hyderabad. He's had one season. So he's signed for a million quid, just over a million quid. He made one brilliant century, barely reached double figures in the rest of the games, and they've opened the door and kicked him out. Yeah, I'm over the moon, to be honest. I really am, because <laughs> he's going to go to India in five test matches, hopefully belt them everywhere, and there's going to be a clamour to knock on Harry Brook's door to say, I'll give you a million quid to come and play in a couple of weeks when the IPL starts again. So... It might just fuel Harry Brook's fire to go to India in the test matches. Obviously, I'm just joking. I'm gutted that he's he's not got a chance to be in the IPL. But like we said, when he got left out of the England World Cup squad, Harry Brook will play World Cup cricket this year. And I think Harry Brook will definitely play IPL cricket this year, this next year as well. So the next time it comes around. But if it's just give him a little bit more energy and fuel that you can have, even, you know, somebody as talented as him, to go and be a force when them five test matches come around. Well, the little carrot on the stick would be to get himself an IPL contract. Um, that can only benefit the England cricket team because if he gets an IPL contract, it'll be off the back of scoring big runs in test ma- in the test matches over there when, you know, the world, is, and the world and India of cricket is watching. So, Fingers crossed from an England point of view, this can be a positive. I've got no doubt Harry Brook will play in the 2024 IPL. Okay, just before the final word, which we'll come to in a moment, uh, and very briefly, funny how when we talk about the big counties, we talk about Surrey, Yorkshire, Lancashire, and we always include Middlesex in there. But Middlesex don't even have a home, and they're, they're financially vulnerable. And that was confirmed in the fixture list when it was announced that they'd played two home games uh, at Chelmsford, yeah. If you're a yeah, if you're a, a member of of Middlesex, I think you've got to be concerned. I think you've got to be concerned about your county and the way it's been run. I, I remember, I remember my brother leaving Durham, went to Kent, and Kent played three 2020 games at the Oval. But the sense that met from a financial point of view was ridiculous because they could fill the Oval. Where this is going the other way. This is going from big stadium to to small ground. So there's obviously something wrong at Middlesex and the way it's being handled and the way it's being run. So I think another one, watch this space. But if I was a member there, I'd be I'd be worried about what my what's what's happening with the running of my county. They are a big county just in name, and that's it. They play at Lords, which is obviously not their home. And I've said many times on this on this show that Middlesex might be better off looking for their own individual home go and build it at, at, at you know, Uxbridge area or something like that and get away from, from Lords because it just seems as though Lords, is, Lords isn't good for, for Middlesex County Critical Club. And until that changes, does Middlesex then become the MCC? Uh, there's, uh, I've seen that written this week. I wouldn't like to see that happen. But along with Sussex, it looks a little bit of a mess off the field. Um, at two very, very good and powerful counties who have produced winners in the in in the recent in the last sort of 20 20 to 25 years Sussex or you know multiple county championship winners and Middlesex have produced some England captains who have gone on to do some good things and one of them's a sir and I'm sure in the not too distant future you know the other one I know he's born in Ireland but it wouldn't surprise me if Sir Owen Morgan comes off the back of you know winning the World Cup so they produce England captains as well. So it would just concern me a little bit if I was a member of Middlesex as well. OK, we've got a minute left. And the final word this week goes to a nation in Africa, which some people may not even be aware is uh, 
a cricketing nation and a proud cricketing nation as well. Of course, the T20 World Cup in six months' time will contain 20 teams. Uh, and there'll be some new names and some unfamiliar ones. And one of them, Harmi, could be Uganda. Yes, Uganda. They beat Zimbabwe the first time they beat a, a, a full nation. First time six- they played a full nation. First time they played a full nation, they beat the full nation. So that stands them in good stead when they get to uh, America and in the West Indies in, in six months' time. But, hey, scenes at the end, yeah, there's passion there for cricket in Uganda. There's passion there with a the team. And to beat Zimbabwe, and I, I heard Davy Houghton. And Davy Houghton is a man who, he's a good man, Davy Houghton, and he doesn't mince his words. And boy, did he not mince his words after that game. What he said to the media, I think, was toned down. So God knows what he said inside the dressing room to the Zimbabwe players because he was not happy. Um, but the one people, the, the, the people who deserve to be happy are the people of Uganda who've got a chance to play against more full member nations. Um, and congratulate them and you know, well done to them because you know, it just shows we've we've highlighted a lot of the final words over the last few weeks, manners about cricket around the world and not just about the ten. Full member nations and Uganda is just another name on people's lips that do where they do have passion for cricket. Brilliant. Okay, and it must be pointed out that uh, they have a a, a long and, and successful history at under nineteen level. This is not just a a flash in the pan and a, and a once off generation who happen to come together and be very good. Actually, the game is progressing and it's it's on a stable footing as well. Um, so fantastic, great news. Um, for Uganda. You've been listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 with me, Neil Manthorpe, and former England fast bowler Steve Harmison. And as always, if you've missed any of the show or you wish to catch up, you can download the podcast from the following on feed, now available via the free TalkSport app or wherever else you get your podcasts. We'll be back next week to look back at the first ODI between the West Indies and England. But for now, this week, it's been another edition of the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.